what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. So much of paid work today doesn't look much like work. Most of us aren't making things, filing things, or meeting about things eight hours a day. There's networking, education, and creative practice in the mix. And because so much of what it takes to do our quote-unquote jobs is pleasurable, it often bleeds into our early mornings and late nights. It's super easy to think you're working a standard 40-hour work week, or maybe even a generous 32-hour week. But if you were to actually account for all of the activities that contributed to your paid work, you might just discover that you're working 60, 80, or even more hours per week. We love the benefits of our flexible, porous working lives, but there are drawbacks too. It's much easier to overwork when you don't even realize you're working. It's harder to take a real break when you don't know you've been going at it for 12 hours straight. And justifying putting in a few more hours in the evening is easy when work is supposed to be fun, right? I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores what it takes to navigate the 21st century economy with your humanity intact. Since 2020, I've been thinking quite a bit about how much time I spend working. I don't mean the time that I'm at my desk. I mean all the time I spend working that doesn't involve being in front of a computer. For me, the distinction between what counts as work and what doesn't is unclear at best and, at worst, utterly meaningless. Most of us seem to be operating as if there was still a clear delineation between work and leisure, when our realities provide no contrast between the two. And thanks to the work of pioneering sociologists like Arlie Russell Hochschild, we recognize that unpaid work is still work. We might only work for pay six or eight hours a day, but then we have housework or reproductive work to do. Still, I think there is a ton of reason to be optimistic about what we can create for ourselves and others with more flexible work. We just also have to know what we're dealing with. So I want to draw on labor writer Amelia Horgan's work for some background here. Horgan devotes an entire chapter of her book, Lost in Work, to exploring the paradox of new work. The new work is exactly what I've been describing here, and it's probably the way most listeners of this podcast go about their work. We can contrast that with the Fordist model of labor. Fordism, named for Henry Ford, is a sort of production line manufacturing work that we think of when we think of those good middle-class jobs from decades gone by. Fordism creates a stark line between work and play. Work involves a hard and fast schedule where a routine task is performed to specific standards. Workers trade that labor for enjoying freedom from the specter of paid work in the evenings and on weekends. Now, the concept of work that the Fordist zeitgeist represents was only ever available to a relatively small segment of the population. Imagining that everyone had the privilege of clocking out after eight hours of straightforward work in the middle of the 20th century is like imagining that everyone today has the privileges of people working in tech with progressive benefit packages and workplace policies. 
women, people of color, immigrants, the disabled, Fordist work models never really applied to the kind of work that was largely accessible to these groups. Yet the model of Fordist work, or at least a modernized version of it, still persists as an ideal to this day. Many people long for a Monday through Friday, nine to five job that they can, quote, leave at the office when they're through. Fordism today has largely been replaced by the Toyota style of just-in-time production, or in the tech world, lean startup and agile methodologies. And this is how work got flexible. Flexible work and production wasn't conceived as a perk for workers, but a profit management strategy. Of course, there is a lot for workers to like about flexible work if it's managed with the worker in mind. But that's a rarity, though. Instead, working time and not working time blend. Horgan puts it this way. This means the merging of work and leisure, with work increasingly resembling play and leisure treated as something that we can and should make profitable, each hobby a potential side gig. From what I can tell, most of us know this, but few of us actually apply it to how we understand our own time. Fordism is still so ingrained and valorized as a mode of work that we just assume it represents our reality. We assume there's a line between work and play or that there should be. When that line was erased, at least two decades ago. And that brings me back to where I started. So much of work today doesn't look very much like work. But maybe what's even more true is that what it takes to get our jobs done, the work we actually get paid for, requires quite a bit of non-working time. Here's what I mean. The other day I was just scrolling through my Twitter feed when I saw a very wise tweet from a user named Moontwerk. The tweet said, quote, is it writer's block or did you just need to spend some time to immerse yourself in the parts of the writing process that don't involve production? As a writer, I do quite a bit of work that doesn't involve producing publishable work. And I'm not just talking about building my audience, pitching stories or drafting and revising. The quote unquote work that keeps me writing is actually reading, listening and researching. And I often do that work before 8 a.m. or after 9 p.m. I do it while I'm running or while I'm taking a lunch break. I do it on weekends and on vacation. And if I don't do that work, I cannot do my paid work. But it still doesn't seem like work. And I hardly ever remember to factor it in when I think about how much time I spend working. Weird, right? Maybe work just isn't a very helpful idea anymore, at, at least not for the self-employed. Horgan sheds some light on this too. Quote, work can be immensely general, near enough to a generic form of expending effort. It is also particular, typically being used to mean paid work, a place of work, a job. This means that the same activity can be both work and not work, depending on the conditions in which it is undertaken. 
So scrubbing floors in someone else's home is work when done for pay, but not work, at least in the narrow sense, when done to keep your own home clean. Similarly, uploading a picture to Instagram, writing the caption, engaging with any comments, and so on, are not work when done on your own time, but are work when your job is managing the social media accounts of a company, or perhaps when you're an influencer posting sponsored content on behalf of a brand. So how do we think about working less when the idea of work covers so much territory? How do we think about working less when some of our most important work doesn't much look like work? And how do we think about working less in a way that benefits others instead of exploiting them? For this episode, I talked with Anne Dittmeyer, an American expat living and working in France. She's a designer, creative coach, and consultant with a global clientele. Anne got in touch with me on Twitter and told me that the way she works today is inspired by her parents in retirement. She also told me that she was normalizing working less, both for herself and others. Before we can get to her unique decisions about time, work, and even location, let's find out how she was working before she started doing things differently. Before Paris, I was working as a graphic designer for an architecture firm in Baltimore. Um, enjoyed it, but I didn't love being at a desk from 8.30 to 5.30 every day. It just was not how I felt inspired, not fulfilled. And the worst part was I had 10 vacation days a year. That physical like repulsion is exactly (laughs) how I felt. And I actually tried to negotiate for a third week of vacation. When I was in an annual review, I never learned to negotiate. I was really proud of this. The economy had tanked. I was like, let me ask for more time off. I had been doing international travel. I would come back with photos that would inspire projects like the Smithsonian signage I was doing. So I had an actual reason to ask for more time off. And one boss was like, oh, that sounds good. And the female boss that I was closer to said, no, read the handbook. You have to work here six years. And the handbook also said that I had to be an associate architect, which is impossible (laughs) when you're not an architect. So I knew I had a lot of resistance to like full-time work. Anne ended up leaving that job to attend grad school in Paris. And she knew she wanted to stay put. I started my own business because grad school taught me plenty of things. And I did global communication, but it also taught me I enjoyed the freedom of doing my own thing and having the flexibility of my days. And so from grad school, yeah, I started my own business, learned everything the hard way, but that business is what allowed me to stay in France, get residency papers, and six years ago, I became French. Oh, really? Yes. So I unlocked the door, have two passports. So in my business story also realized that so much was learning a business the like hardest way possible everything they don't teach you in school but i'm also balancing another layer of balancing bureaucracy and just trying to stay alive after i wrote my master's thesis i had to write a 50-page business plan in french but it was collecting all the documents that was really the challenge so it's kind of this game of staying within the system and feeling like I could contribute more to society if I was actually making money, but money and business like was the last thing. So I've gotten to a point where I've really been able to to work in a different way. And I, I, I'm grateful for France because I call it one giant creative constraint of I had the right to work in France except for salaried. I didn't want salaried work except working in a university. And so the what I was allowed to do and wasn't allowed to do <laughs> became a thing 
that was never a thing as an American. Now, of course, I wanted to find out what being self-employed in Paris actually meant for the way Anne spends her time. She told me that at first, she just wanted to enjoy the freedom. At first, I loved having all the freedom, and I was mm -hmm. resistant to structure. A lot of us, myself included, seem to go through this phase. Some of us never leave it. Whether that works for you or not is a different story. But since those early days, Anne's fallen into more of a routine. And so over the years, it's all become this practice. So now I have this like morning routine. I'm up at 7.10, which French are, my French friends are like, that's so early in American oh. people. <laughs> <laughs> North Americans are like, thank you for that reaction. I don't even need to explain. So I was up at five. So, yeah, you know, <laughs> and that's late for some standards, too. Um, so seven, ten, I get up, I do a meditation, morning pages. I joined something called Writer's Hour, which is a, a free Zoom room through London Writer's Salon. I write. So I'm trying to work on my own projects and not just, you know, my professional work at that time. But I point this out because I try to structure my morning having that little base that I developed during the pandemic. I was able to refine it. I just like to have a productive morning and whatever happens the afternoon, it's a bonus if it gets done and if it doesn't, so be it. So I've learned to become a lot more gentle. And the thing is by having these morning pages inspired by Julia Cameron, the artist's way, and then going into this, you know, Zoom room with a couple hundred people around the world working on their own projects of a huge variety, when that's over, I'm in a work groove and I just keep going. And so it's not the fighting and forcing. I used to fight with the snooze button all the time. And it's become really important. You know, another pandemic habit was going for a walk every day. You know, I live in Paris. It's beautiful outside. It's very picturesque and scenic. I usually listen to a podcast. Sometimes I'm like, I listen to nothing. And integrating reading during the day. So it is all stuff that I would have judged early on, uh, but have learned to embrace. But I like to to use the time and watch where my energy goes for sure. It's that having that focused morning shifts the entire day and sets me up for whatever might happen. I have a similar routine to Anne, and I find that there's a lot to be learned about how we work today from cultivating this kind of practice for daily structure. Why continue to try to find the distinction between work and leisure or work and life when there doesn't seem to be one? Instead, bringing awareness to daily routines might shed light on how our time has become converted into something that can be applied to paid work, unpaid work, and pleasure, sometimes even at the same time. Of course, not everybody is on the same page with this. Even among professionals, knowledge workers, and other business owners, the lack of distinction between work and life can create friction, either externally or internally. Anne told me that she often experiences a sense of judgment and guilt about the ease with which she moves through her day. For so long, I just held a lot of guilt, and I still don't totally know the core of it. But so much as seeing what was modeled around me and thinking that's what it needs to look like, and if it didn't look that way, you know, something was wrong... I have this one memory of having lunch uh, with a friend in my neighborhood. And she said, oh, what are you doing this afternoon? I said, oh, I think I'm going to go home and read a book. I think it was even teaching online courses. And it was, it was for that class. But she said some comment to the effect, oh, you're so lucky you get to read during the day. And it wasn't meant as an insult or a dig. 
but I realized how loaded that statement was. Feeling like I should be more productive, that I need to be mm-hmm. doing all these things. But realizing for me, along with digestion, I think of it as percolation. So I need that time to get the ideas flowing, to get things happening. And then I can pump something out really fast. Um, trying to get rid of a lot of that baggage that comes with it. And then knowing that I think we can be control freaks and we want, we're like, oh, you know, I'm burned out, but I'll be back in a week and a half or two weeks. You know, it, we're so naive to the realities. So I think every event in my life, you know, serious or sad or different, it, it takes time. It takes a lot of bandwidth and it's more than you think. Even with Anne's sharp attention to her work, energy, and time, she can still underestimate the burden a particular choice might create. So in December, I ended up doing four variations of a workshop I run, and it's all the same material. It's all stuff I can do in my sleep. But at the end of the year, everything going on in the world, everything going on in life, you know, Even just recognizing, wow, even that took a lot out of me. Maybe I didn't need to do this bonus workshop that I wanted to because there was interest, but maybe I don't need to take it all on. So a lot of it's just been learning to question how things are done and why we're doing things and do I really need to be doing more? And, you know, my whole year looking back really did less. And I try to normalize it in conversation too. Just that, you know, because I, hate when people say, oh, you do so much. Because when I say that to somebody else, that's not a compliment. But society makes you think it is. And, you know, it's not a badge of honor. And so (laughs) just trying to look at things differently. So yes, I might do a lot over time, but it's all these small steps that involve care, involve processing, involve past experience I bring to the table that allow me to do this more efficiently and effectively. And sometimes it's on its own time and not (laughs) the timeline I originally think. I can really relate to that. Just yesterday, I was telling someone how I've had to learn to think about different types of work impacting my working time differently. Time devoted to talking to people, even if it's just an hour or two in a day, might reduce my ability to focus on other projects significantly, while time devoted to writing work seems to generate more time. And this is kind of akin to what Brittany Berger calls energy management. We're all familiar with task management and time management, but those systems are all built with the idea that each working hour or task are essentially the same as all the others. Back in episode 349, I asked Brittany about how she defines energy management. So I like to say that energy management isn't letting go of all of the other productivity tactics, but it's using your personal energy levels as a filter to put the rest of them through. Energy management is kind of just like honing your self-awareness around your productivity. Because once you know your energy levels and rhythms, how they fluctuate throughout the day and week and stuff like that, it becomes really easy to know, you know, what time of day is best for you to write or what time of day is best 
just for you to do your admin or take a break and just it becomes a lot easier to arrange your life to expend not even just like minimal amounts of energy, but also energy at the right time. Another way to shift the quality of the time we spend working though, is by shifting the story you have about what you're doing. And when that story shifts, even if the task doesn't change, you may be able to find a greater level of satisfaction with that task. Not always, but perhaps more often than not. So I wanted to find out what role satisfaction plays and how Anne thinks about her working time. So satisfaction is just kind of being in that moment and enjoyment. And it's a little bit of, I love flow. And I mean, I don't think that those words are naturally linked, but for me, they are. And so I'm very rarely doing something that I don't enjoy or don't like. A lot of it has been shifting to how I look at things. I used to have a lot of blocks and fear around money, but on Monday mornings, I look forward to Money Mondays where I sit down and look at my numbers and I fill in my account and stuff. So, you know, finding ways of finding enjoyment in whatever you're doing, because Francis taught me, <laughs> they ingrained so many limiting beliefs in me, like, oh, this is how it's done. Say comme ça, like, no, you can't do this. All my professors told me I couldn't become French or stay, or they told me I couldn't even stay in France after grad school. And I was like, oh, look, I did. So a lot of it is just working through these stories and being like, wait, what if there's another way of doing this and approaching it? When you slow down and you prioritize the right things, then you save so much time. So I think when there's too much time just to think, it's scary. I was so afraid of systems because they seemed like this control and this big machine. But now I'm seeing how they can be these fun creative constraints that allow me to create even better work, make a bigger impact, but feel more satisfied in the end and enjoy what I do. Because if I'm not enjoying it, there's no point. It is clear to me that Anne has developed a real self-trust. And that is not an easy feat. Her secret? Being honest with herself. It's just come down to being more honest with myself and with others and I think I'm still naive. I'm like, oh, I have two weeks to do this, but there are other things that have to happen. So I try not to do multiple projects at once. I try to, you know, devote time for that. There's always a little bit of overlap, but I know that correspondence and back and forth and getting things set up takes energy and effort as well. But I try to be less of that juggling act, multitasker, and just be in what I am in for that moment. So there, I know that there's so many more evolutions I haven't considered yet, but the less I work, the more I feel in, in a natural flow of the work I should be doing, the work that brings the biggest change and evolution and transformation in others. I feel alive. I feel energized. I get the nicest notes from people. So I just feel like slowing down and making that space. I've been able to be more true to myself be able to breathe. And so when I do show up, I'm fully there for people. I have another friend now that, you know, I'll say, oh, I worked like 15 hours this week. And he said, you know, you have to remember, like, defining what work is. And for me, work is nourishing myself. It is reading lots of books. It is listening to podcasts. It's not overloading myself, but it's to be able to support my clients, support others, support myself. And it takes time to digest this stuff and 
France has also taught me that life is a full-time job and that was never acknowledged to me. And I'm not married, I don't have kids, I have a lot more freedom than a lot of people and luxury, and I'm still astounded how full my days are. So I just know how important those cushions are and that space, because we can't go 110% all the time. Life is a full-time job. It sure is. I don't know that there's any point in trying to make a clear distinction between working and non-working time anymore for people like Anne and I, and probably you too. But I do think that we need to cultivate a deep awareness of how we are spending our time and why. If we just let work blend into the rest of our lives unconsciously, we'll feel tired and overwhelmed without being able to pinpoint why. The more we can recognize the connections between leisure, family, self-care, and work time, the more we can make intentional decisions about how we navigate those connections. Find out more about Anne Dittmeyer at AnneDittmeyer.com. Next week, I'll have the final installment of the Time and Money series on the difference between being busy and being squeezed. And on April 5th, I've got a conversation on the problem of over-delivering with sales coach Allison Davis. After that, I'll be taking about four weeks off to finish up my book manuscript. If what works is helping you think differently about time, money, and how you're navigating the 21st century economy, please share the show with a friend. The easiest way to do that is through Podlink. You can find the show at pod.link slash whatworks, and that page will allow anyone you share the show with to easily open their favorite podcast app and start listening. That's pod.link slash whatworks. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. This episode was edited by me, Tara McMullen, and Marty Seafelt. Our executive producer is Sean McMullen. What Works is recorded and produced on the ancestral homelands of the Susquehannock people. The Yellow House is located on the unceded land of the Katunaha Nation. <laughs>